0: You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. On Tuesday, February 22nd, Queen's University announced the completion of an international study conducted in partnership with the University of Toledo that confirmed that current water quality guidelines do not go far enough to address the ecological impact of road de-icing salts, but also agricultural fertilizers, mining operations, and even climate change on the salinity of freshwater ecosystems. And with us today to talk about this new research is Dr. Shelley Arnott, Professor of Aquatic Ecology in the Department of Biology and co-leader on the project and paper. Welcome, Shelly. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, Shelley, tell us a little bit more about the research on the damage to freshwater lakes by salt concentrations and what motivated the research to get underway in the first place.
1: Yeah, um, so... What motivated it was that through long-term studies, we're realizing that the chloride concentration is increasing in lakes. And so chloride is one of the components of of salt. So one of the most common um, road salts uh, that we use is sodium chloride. And so with these long-term studies, people have been noticing that in lakes and rivers, the chloride concentration has been increasing. Hmm. and In Southern Ontario, um, that is primarily driven by the application of these deicing salts or road salt and there Canada has pretty strict water quality guidelines we know that we know that salt or chloride is, is toxic and um, we so we have a, a guideline that's set at 120 milligrams of chloride per liter um, in, that we will allow in the water because that it, that level is supposed to still protect aquatic life and what we found with some early studies that we did was that when we did studies in soft water, so in water with low calcium, like what you would find on the Canadian shield, that actually the, the organisms were much more sensitive at levels way below that 120 milligrams of um, uh, chloride per liter. Mm-hmm. And so we were pretty concerned about that because it was, it was quite shocking to, to have effects at that low levels. And so we teamed up with forty-five researchers at sixteen different sites, and we asked them to do a common experiment where mm-hmm. we, we manipulated the chloride concentration, and we wanted to see whether community zooplankton communities from around the world um, whether they responded in a similar or different way to chloride. And the surprising thing that we found was, you know, although there was some variation from site to site. Um, Most sites were sensitive below these water quality guidelines, suggesting that we really need to to do more to protect aquatic organisms.
0: Okay, thank you. And thanks for giving us a a little bit of a glimpse into what the research looked like across these uh, 16 sites, as you mentioned can we dig a little deeper and learn a bit more about how the experiments are conducted? How do you get the samples? How do you do this? Is it happening on the ground, on the site itself? Or are you taking samples back to a lab? And then what do you do with these samples to actually find the results?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So it's, so we're, we're working with zooplankton.
0: which mm-hmm. you can't see with the naked eye, right?
1: Yeah. You, they're little, they're, if you hold up a jar of water you can see like little flecks um, uh, in, in and so they serve a really important role in okay. like even though they're so tiny so they graze algae and uh. they transfer that energy from the primary producers, so from the algae um, up to the fish and so they're a really really important for maintaining the water clarity so for keeping lakes clear but also for supporting fish populations. And so we focused on them because they're also a really good indicator. They respond to environmental change. Mm -hmm. And so what we did was we used um, containers of various sizes. And some of these containers um, or tanks sat on the land and some of them were in the water and we filled them with water and then we added zooplankton and phytoplankton to them. And then we had um, anywhere from 20 to of, of these tanks. And then we added different amounts of, of sodium chloride to each of them so that we had a gradient of, of chloride. Mm -hmm. Then we, after six weeks, so after the, the community has had time to grow. And so you've, you've got several generations of, of zooplankton that have, that have been produced. Mm -hmm. We then sample them um, sometimes using a very, very fine net Um, and sometimes using a a container that grabs a, a certain amount of water. And we take it back to the lab and we look at them under the microscope and we look at what species are there and how many of each species are present. And so what we were finding was that when we looked at the, compared the amount of zooplankton in the various tanks with different amounts of chloride, as you increase the amount of chloride, the abundance of, of all of the different types of taxa decreased dramatically. And they decreased at fairly low chloride concentrations.
0: Thank you for sh- telling us a little bit more about what that scientific experimental process actually looks like too. Thanks so much. And now, yes, we talked or uh, you mentioned a little bit about the research results. Uh, you You mentioned that you uh, your team had discovered a significant decline in the various species uh, as the concentrations uh, had gone up. Now, what are the implications here? Uh, what are the imp- ecological impacts or threats that this uh, salinization triggers in freshwater systems overall?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that, that my lab looked at was what it, what it did to the phytoplankton. Mm-hmm. And and so I had mentioned that these zooplankton are are grazing or they're consuming algae, and when you reduce the number of grazers, then you you know it's like having fewer people at a at a buffet. There's more food left over. Mm-hmm. So when you reduce the number of consumers, um, then then the amount of food increases. And so what we found yet, um, with the work in our lab and across all sites was that in in many cases, the amount of algae increased. So the, so the water became greener. And the work that um, our lab did actually showed that the type of algae changed. And so it changed from being these small um, uh, single cell green algae to something called cyanobacteria. And people probably know um, about cyanobacteria because these are what caused those those algal bloom scums that you see on the surface of some lakes. And so it's really important in terms of... um, recreation. You know, people would much prefer to, to swim or boat on a, a lake that's clear rather than one that's covered in green algae. And it, it could potentially also have implications for, for fisheries, mm. because if you have, if you have fewer zooplankton, you have less food ultimately for, for the fish. And so we didn't study the fish, but we, we suspect that it could have a long-term impact impact on the um, fish production.
0: Okay, thank you so much. So we've learned a little bit about the uh, ecological impacts, but also uh, the impact on freshwater services that people take advantage of on a day-to-day basis. Appreciate those insights. So now, will this research perhaps be used to motivate government policy, inform the government about Particular issues uh, inform them uh, or make recommendations for new guidelines or some kinds of interventions. What's happening next vis-a-vis uh, governance?
1: Yeah, and I mean that's what we're hoping that that this is a little bit of a of a wake-up call that we need to reassess those guidelines mm-hmm. and at the very least reassess um, or look at at how different. um, different regions might respond. And so I mentioned the soft water versus hard water. Mm -hmm. And some of the work that we're doing is actually looking at what's the direct effect of hard water versus soft water. And so our Muskoka lakes, because they have soft water more sensitive than say Kingston lakes that tend to have very hard water. And I think that's an important next step is looking at whether we need to refine these guidelines kind of more on a regional basis. And in order to protect those really sensitive, um, sensitive lakes. And Hmm. so I think, I think that's an important, um, step in terms of looking at the guidelines. And I think there's also other important, um, things that, that we can do, you know, locally and regionally in terms of reducing the amount of salt that we use. Okay. And I'm sure that you and anyone listening has walked on the sidewalks or parking lots and during the winter and crunched on the amount of salt that's applied and one of one of the the biggest issues is that we over apply salt we we just kind of indiscriminately you know dump it onto the sidewalks trying to reduce ice and there's so much that we can do to reduce that Um, we don't need as much as as what's applied Mm -hmm. we can also apply it in a lot smarter way Um, A lot of municipalities are working towards applying a salt brine, Mm -hmm. which is much more effective because salt only works when it's in water. It those, that sodium and that chloride need to dissociate in order to reduce the melting point of ice, which is how salt works. Mm -hmm. So if we mix it with water ahead of time and apply that brine, it's going to be much more effective and we need to have a lot less in order... To have the same
0: effect. Okay. All right.
1: That's another really important step that, that we can do. Um, another, another thing that's really important, um, is the, the training of, of people that actually are contracted to apply the ice or the deicers. And so I think that if, if we can Regulate that and and ensure that the people are that are doing the job are actually trained to be smart about salt, which is the program that does the training. um, Then I think that would do a lot to reduce the amount of, of salt and and I think on a personal level, we can also look at how we approach snow removal and so on your front walk. You know, rather than throwing a bunch of salt to try to get rid of the, the the snow and the ice, you can actually shovel it when it first when it first happens, which which seems like a, you know a pretty a pretty easy step that we could all take to reduce the amount of salt.
0: It seems to me though that uh, the water, if it, if it's coming off the roads within the city streets or the highways, for example, a lot of that would just be flowing naturally into Uh, the waterways through culverts and and storm drains, I imagine. Is that how the, this, the, how it's all making its way to these rivers and and lakes?
1: Yeah. So in, in, in cities and urban areas, for sure, Mm -hmm. there's, you know, it's going from the roads uh, flowing off into, through, you know, storm sewer networks, et cetera, and, and right into the lakes and streams. And, and we certainly detect, um, you know, spikes in the amount of, of chloride that that's in streams, um, after snow events. And so you can see that rise in chloride, um, from the, the de-icers flushing off, Okay, but it also, it also goes through the soil. And so then you have, um, more of a long, a long term slow release. And so that's what's actually driving kind of this long term increase in chloride that that we see in in lakes, for example.
0: Good to know. Well, thank you very much. Now, where can folks access the published paper?
1: It's in a, a journal called the Proceedings of the um, National Academy of Science.
0: Okay, so what's happening next? Uh, or is there continued research uh, in this particular area happening, uh, new experiments that are going to be coming up with the team that you've been working ac- with across four countries? Where do you go from here?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so there's a number of different experiments that we're doing. Um, One of them that I think is really important is that we're looking at the effects of road salt alternatives. And so a lot of people are uh, companies are coming up with different formula that um, some of them you've probably heard about they um, it's mixed with beet juice or molasses. And and that is actually really effective in reducing the amount of chloride that's applied. But the the problem is, is that the toxicity of those components haven't been um, <laughs> investigated enough. And so we're doing a lot of work to try to understand, you know, you know how good or bad are, are these, these alternatives in comparison to road salt. Um, we also have a lot of work where we're looking at that water mm-hmm. hardness issue and, and really trying to figure out what is the relationship between, you know, the water hardness and the toxicity of road salt. And then finally, we are doing a large global project where we're looking at um, uh, differences in sensitivity in in single species. And so the idea with that is trying to see whether um, zooplankton can evolve an increased tolerance. So if you have a history of exposure to higher chloride, does that make you more resistant okay. to it? And so that's a that's a, a pretty exciting ongoing project that.
0: All right. Well, I'd love to follow up with you another day and down the road and learn more about what's happening with those experiments, too. Thank you very much. Folks, we've been chatting with Dr. Shelley Arnett of the Department of Biology about the research she co-led about the ecological impacts of freshwater salinization and the need for stronger water quality guidelines to protect freshwater systems from human activities like de-icing our roads. Thank you very much, Shelley. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today.
1: Okay, thanks, Diane. Bye.